If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, March the 29th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in the Hoover studio, deep in the heart of Stanford University's brilliantly lit campus. It is sunny and 80 degrees here today, folks. Neil Ferguson. He is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and a Senior Fellow for the Center for European Studies at Harvard, where he served for 12 years as the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of History. Neil Ferguson writes a weekly column for the Sunday Times and the Boston Globe. He's published 14 books, the latest of which is The Square and the Tower, Networks, Hierarchies, and the Struggle for Global Power. Neil, thanks for coming back to the show. Good to be with you, Bill. I did not mention Cardinal Conversations. Tell us what Cardinal Conversations is and how it's gone. Cardinal Conversations uh, is a free speech speaker series that uh, I guess I, I dreamt up with uh, a, a group of undergraduates who, who came to see me seeking some greater intellectual diversity on campus. Mm -hmm. To my delight, this aligned with the ambition of uh, President Mark Tessier-Levine and Provost Perzas Drell to get a little bit more intellectual diversity on campus and so we uh, we created cardinal conversations the idea being not to have those old-fashioned debates where people get in their soapboxes but to have conversations between smart interesting people with different perspectives and i think we got the series off to a terrific launch with mm -hmm. peter Thiel and reed hoffman talking about politics and technology right. And we followed that up uh, with a fascinating conversation on populism and inequality with Charles Murray and Francis Fukuyama. And we have more good things in store uh, in just a few weeks. Uh, there will be Ted Koppel, Anne Applebaum, and Jessica Lesson talking about fake and real news. Mm -hmm. And to round the academic year off, Christina Summers and Andrew Sullivan will talk about politics and sexuality. So... I think we have achieved what I certainly hope to achieve, which was to have some really interesting outside speakers come and, and challenge received wisdom on a campus which leans strongly liberal in the faculty right. and where intellectual diversity hasn't been perhaps as high a priority as it might have been. But the idea of free speech? The idea is that you, uh, you should be able to come uh, to Stanford and... Uh, make an argument that uh, may not be uh, comfortable uh, for some people on campus, may even offend some people on campus. But if it is a serious argument, I don't think we want gratuitous provocateurs here, but if it's a serious argument, then you should be heard, uh, even if people are offended. And I thought, thought that was one of the very strong arguments for inviting Charles Murray, who's often been maligned uh, ever since the publication of his book, The Bell Curve, uh, years ago now, I think wrongly misrepresented as somebody with uh, politically incorrect views on race, but who in fact has been one of the most insightful writers about the issue of inequality in America mm -hmm. over uh, more than 20 years, and whose book Coming Apart was, I think, one of the most prescient books about what was happening in American society, a book that really helped you understand the Trump phenomenon when it became 
so politically decisive in 2016. So I'm very glad that Charles Murray uh, was able to come to Stanford. Uh, we didn't have the kind of disruption that occurs uh, or has occurred at other colleges when Charles Murray has spoken. And in fact, the resulting conversation, which you can see right. online, was, I thought, really interesting and insightful and presented two quite different accounts of of what has driven the, the recent populist wave in politics. Mm -hmm. Two housekeeping matters from across the pond, if you will. Uh, a year ago today, Theresa May triggers Article 50, starting the Brexit negotiation. And born 75 years ago on this day, John Major. Well, John Major had a tough time as prime minister, and I'm old enough to remember how many of us uh, loyal Thatcherites looked down our noses a bit at John Major and, and didn't give him uh, unequivocal support. By comparison with Theresa May, John Major now looks like a strong and effective prime minister who delivered for the United Kingdom a really terrific deal. Uh, we were able to be full members of the European Union without having to sign up for the bits we didn't like, particularly the monetary union that was so central to mm -hmm. the European project back in the 1990s and ultimately produced the euro. Now it's all being undone. And as a consequence of the Brexit referendum in 2016, Britain is, is leaving the EU slowly, going through one of those protracted, expensive divorces that some of us know all about. And at the end of it all, I suspect we'll look back and say, hmm, why did we give that great deal up that Major had negotiated for us when we had the best of both worlds? And we now end up for at least two years as Norway, in effect, signing up for the rules of the European Union, but not having any votes, not being a member, but right. essentially abiding by the rules. And so for that transition period, which is going to last about two years, Britain's going to be in a limbo. And, and in, that, in a sense, that limbo is a significantly worse position than it was in before. So John Major, I have to say, looks a lot better now with the passage of time than, than he did in the early 90s. The square and the tower networks hierarchies and the struggle for global power. Congratulations, my friend. Good timing on your book in this regard. Not bad. About five miles from us as the crow flies, there is a vast social network, which is in the midst of a struggle for power right now, and that is your friends at Facebook over right. on Hacker Lane in Menlo Park. I don't know if you visit it or not, but about five miles, ten-minute drive from, I have from Stanford. You, sir, have written some rather unkind words about Mr. Zuckerberg and suggested that Facebook might be a bit of an evil enterprise. Now, Neil Ferguson... I think of Edith Lillian Prize, I think, Monsanto. Monsanto does what? They make pesticides. They've been caught poisoning waterways in Alabama. Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto, which is an African mining concern, and they are up to their eyeballs in human trafficking problems. Siemens, which had a very untoward relationship with the Third Reich. Neil, these are, these are evil corporations, I think we might say. Why is Facebook, that company that just wants to do wonderful things, make this a happy world with that nice young man who wears the T-shirt, what have they done wrong? Well, there are different ways of, of uh, doing evil in the world. I'm not going to implicitly agree with the things you said a minute ago about those other corporations. Let's just focus on, on Facebook. Let's talk about Facebook. Yes, what, what have they done wrong? You know, Facebook is actually in the U.S. subtitle of my book because uh, you quoted the U.K. subtitle. The U.S. subtitle is, is Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. So Facebook's in uh -huh. the subtitle of the book, and I've spent a lot of time in the last few years thinking about it. The stated intention right back at the beginning in the early days in Harvard was to connect the world. And who could possibly argue with that 
noble enterprise to build a global community, as Mark Zuckerberg later common, called it. Common global community. And we were all going to get together and be connected and right. solve the world's problems. And this was, right. to quote Zuckerberg again, where the arc of history was leading us. Quote, quote, a force for peace in the world. Exactly. And who could possibly be against that? Of course, when you start, as Facebook did, making money from monetizing your users' data, and the key change in the Facebook business model was when Facebook discovered that it could, in fact, sell uh, advertising uh, on its platform. And that advertising would be tremendously effective because the user data allows Facebook to target very carefully right. where adverts go and, and how, they're, how they're crafted. I think that changed the logic of Facebook from let's connect the world and make it a better place to let's make a ton of money. And I think once you're making a ton of money, other considerations, including making the world a better place, tend to recede. Mm -hmm. I, I think this culminated in 2016, though, though it had been going on for some time, with the scandal that has now surfaced of, of the company Cambridge Analytica, which got hold of a huge amount of personal data, right. 30 to 50 million U.S. users, and then made that available to Donald Trump's campaign. Or you could go back uh, a little earlier in the story and, and point out that the Russians were able to buy Facebook advertising and, and disseminate extraordinarily polarizing messages that reached as many people as actually voted in November 2016. Mm -hmm. These are the things that happen when the profit motive takes over from whatever it was you set out to do right. to make the world a better place. And I, I think, you know, they may not have poisoned any rivers uh, or trafficked in, in conflict diamonds or worked um, with the Third Reich because they weren't around then. But what has Facebook done? Well, it has clearly worked with uh, at least one authoritarian regime, namely Russia's. Mm -hmm. And I think more importantly, it has become one of those engines of polarization that are slowly poisoning the body politic in the United States. Polarization in the sense of extreme views, polarization in the sense of fake news. Right. So you don't need to poison uh, the Gulf of Mexico or, or rivers in the American South to be a bad company. You can poison the body politic. And I think Facebook did that in 2016 in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. You look at the tech community, Neil, you look at the FANG companies, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, and so forth. Is the problem Icarus? Is it flying too close to the sun? Or is the problem narcissist, too in love with oneself? Well, there was a lot of, of narcissism and perhaps Icarusism uh, prior to the election. When I moved here from the East Coast, which was in the summer of 2016, I was very struck by the the arrogance I encountered, which reminded me of Wall Street before the financial crisis, right. the masters of the universe mentality, mm -hmm. uh, the resistance is futile to our brilliant business models mentality. There was plenty of that. And I think that led to some major errors of judgment. Uh, and one that I think will become very important for Facebook was that even when they found out in 2015 that there had been a problem with data uh, that had got to Cambridge Analytica or was on its way to Cambridge Analytica because it had uh, certainly not stayed in 
in the proper place. They didn't tell anyone about that. Right. Now, I think that's going to look very bad when the Federal Trade Commission comes along and says, uh, did you abide by the terms of the decree of 2011 with respect to users' data? And the answer is going to be, we tried. But actually, the real answer was no. What is going to happen when Mark Zuckerberg goes to Washington and testifies, which I imagine at some point he will? Neil, he has a free lunch on Capitol Hill in this regard. The right is absolutely convinced. You listen to talk shows like Ben Shapiro and other talk shows. They talk every day about how Facebook uses algorithms to drive people away from conservative news feeds. So the right's convinced that Facebook is suppressing information. The left now is convinced that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook have been duped in some way. They're responsible for Hillary Clinton's election. Newsweek did a wonderful list the other day, 17 things that Hillary has, Hillary has listed as reasons why she lost the election. Facebook will soon be number 18. So he's whipsawed. The left is mad at him right now. The right's mad at him right now. What he's go- What is he going to do when he goes before Congress? Good luck, Mark. Mayor Culpa is uh, not going to cut it. I think <laughs> it's going to be ugly. I think... There are other reasons besides the one you just gave why it's going to be ugly. There is a significant part of uh, the Democratic Party which is attracted to the old idea of antitrust, that this is a monopoly, so maybe our other big companies in Silicon Valley that uh, perhaps ought to be broken up. And it's interesting that the president himself seems to be drawn to this idea, though he has decided to pick a fight with Amazon rather than Facebook I'm not sure quite why he's doing that, since Amazon's by far the most popular of the tech companies, and uh, and it seems unlikely that any antitrust action against Amazon would get past first base. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. But that's, of course, reason number one. And reason number two is probably some of his buddies in real estate are complaining about their, their shopping malls that are being rendered obsolete by Amazon. But right. I think there's a bunch of stuff going on in Washington that, that is going to make Mark Zuckerberg's reception pretty hostile. And it's interesting that that wouldn't have been true even a matter of months ago. I, I was talking about these issues because the book is partly about these issues some time back and I could not get much traction uh, last year uh, even when I went and and pointed out to uh, senior Republicans that there might be a problem coming up in 2018 with the liberal skew of the major internet companies there was a kind of uh, lack of interest in that partly because I think Republicans default setting is we don't regulate big successful companies even when they're run by outright progressives and I think on the other side the Democrats uh, broadly speaking, take so much money from technology companies that they're not really going to be that serious about roughing them up. But, you know, ultimately, there comes a moment when a bad story turns into a really, really bad story, and Cambridge Analytica has proved to be that moment. It wasn't like they didn't have problems before, but somehow this has caught the attention of the political class. And I think you're right. I think Facebook will soon be number one reason why Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. And I think that's right, because I think without Facebook, without the extraordinary uh, power of the Facebook advertising tool, which Trump's campaign understood very well how to use, I can't see how he would have won, because he was outspent two to one. In a non-Facebook election, you could also add Twitter and YouTube to the mix, but let's just say in a non-social media environment, I don't think Donald Trump could have won. It was an extremely close close election. You can point to any number of variables and say that made the difference. But if you just run the thought experiment of Clinton v. Trump without social media, Mm -hmm. he can't possibly win that election. So I think Facebook is going to become increasingly a 
demon for both sides. Mm -hmm. And that is not a good place to be for a company that depends ultimately for its success on reputation, on the trust of users. That trust has taken a big hit. And now here comes the political class to treat it like a pinata. Let's talk a bit about the psychological unraveling that might be going on too, where people for years have been using technology. And I think, Neil, they have subconsciously just buried something that's going on. You buy something on a website and then you do a Google search the next day and lo and behold, that website magically appears as an ad next to you. Wow, what a coincidence. Yeah. You're not making the connection that my information has been swapped out and they know where I am and they're trying to get me to buy more of the same. People now coming to the realization that, gee, my data might be being used for things I don't understand, just as people might be coming to the realization that, say, Apple might indeed make a phone that perhaps purposely craps out after four to five years, so I buy <laughs> another phone. So have Americans and people in the world just been sort of walking around in a cloud, to use a tech metaphor, Neil, or what, what do you think is going on here? We drank a lot of Kool-Aid, didn't we? And it was in abundant supply. Right. Uh, make the world uh, connected, a world where everybody is linked. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything will be awesome in this world. Well, this this did sound pretty good, and I think even I would have to admit that there was a period when my critical faculties were somewhat dulled by the Kool-Aid. Right. But gradually people are waking up to the fact that these have become the biggest corporations in the world right. through exploitation of user data and that this is a power that can be and has been abused. And I think it's the fact that the power has been abused that is really important here, that people's data was not treated uh, with privacy as the priority. It was treated with advertising sales as the priority. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's a disillusionment happening, and it extends right across uh, the technology space for the reasons that you've just mentioned, and I dare say it extends to driverless cars too, now that the first person has been killed by a driverless car. That was the most predictable event of 2018. Right. With 100% certainty, I, I could say last year, someone will be killed by one of these cars and it will be a huge, a huge story. So I think we are in, in a kind of backlash, but uh, the question that seems to me relevant here is, are we just too addicted right. to kick the habit? Mark Benioff of Salesforce said, I, th I think in January, that you know, Facebook really was like cigarettes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Sean Parker, who was one of the very early investors in Facebook admitted that it had been designed to be addictive, to uh, encourage us to, to pick up our phones with, uh, with a dopamine hit in mind. So I, I think a really interesting question for this year will be, does the reputational damage of Cambridge Analytica plus the Russian involvement in the election lead people to desert the platform? Or do they just keep going like smokers who keep keep smoking even though, though they know it causes cancer? And I think there's some reason to think that it may be the latter. Well, Neil, I hate to break the news, but Playboy has left Facebook. Yet Neil Ferguson is still on Facebook. I am. But I, I, I would say that my publishers have a lot to answer for there. I am on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube for one reason alone. And that is to try to persuade people to get off social media and read books. So I'm like the, the missionary who right. goes to uh, the land of the heathen at great personal risk uh, with the message that there can be redemption. And redemption lies in books. And if one can only stop looking at the addictive cell phone, stop looking at these dreaded news feeds 
and Twitter feeds and pick up a book, then one is going to find not only enlightenment, but peace of mind. You will never get peace of mind from the internet. Right, you're the fellow standing out the football stadium on Sunday morning telling people to go to church. That's me. <laughs> uh, have you seen The Social Network? I have. Have you watched it more than once? No. I have because it's an Aaron Sorkin screenplay, and Sorkin writes very clever screenplays. I know it plays very fast and loose with the actual history of Facebook, but what, what fact-based movie does not. Um, a couple of thoughts, a couple of lines come to kind of mm. mind from that movie. One is where the young Stanford girl wakes up in the morning with Sean Parker and mentions that she's on Facebook, and she calls it, I think, frighteningly addictive, which gets back to your mm. point. But the other is when the Sean Parker character is having uh, dinner or drinks, I think, with Zuckerberg and friends, and he just he walks off, and as he turns around, Justin Timberlake says, you want Facebook to be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Is Facebook no longer cool? Is technology no longer cool? Well, Facebook's no longer cool. You can tell that by the fact that the 12 to 17-year-olds prefer other platforms, right. including Snapchat uh, or Instagram, though that's a Facebook, Owned by Facebook. company. But actually, the Snapchat uh, popularity with the very young users is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I have... Uh, I have a sense that that's a, a major worry for them coming because if Facebook's not cool to the early teenagers, then it's not cool uh, at all. My sense is that technology is still cool, but it's not the giant network platforms that are cool. If you want to be cool in technology these days, you talk about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and you look down your nose at uh, these these giants, uh, indeed, I think it's it's increasingly hip to to back either antitrust, yeah, to, to to back the idea of breaking them up, or to back back the idea of regulating them. Right. It's fascinating, you know, how many ex Facebook people are now going around the valley, not to mention Washington D.C., dishing the dirt on Facebook. Uh, I had a fascinating conversation the other day with one of the early, early, early investors in Facebook, somebody who has publicly uh, condemned uh, Facebook's recent business practices. I sense that the, the really striking feature of our time is the backlash against the platforms by the insiders. That's really important because it's hard for the journalists who are running with this story at The Guardian, The New York Times and elsewhere to do it well without those insiders telling them what really happened. Right. And there are a lot of inside insiders who are prepared to turn against uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, and I think they've only done it because they were not listened to for quite a long time. Right. Uh, I mean, the case of Roger McNamee is super interesting here. McNamee spotted what was going on during the election, flagged it up, noticed that there was a pattern. This was a man who truly understands the the platform and, and was one of the earliest investors in it. But he was essentially told, uh, never mind about all that, we're too busy counting our rubles. And I think the the fact that he's gone public with his criticisms in a big piece in the Washington Monthly uh, not so long ago is very significant because the insiders know how this all happened. And they also know what you can do to fix it but the key point is you can't really fix it unless you fundamentally alter the business model. If you stop Facebook from using user data promiscuously to, uh, to sell 
advertising, then it can no longer be the extraordinary cash-generating machine that it is. So I think that's the other big issue here. Do users defect or are they addicted? And do, you, and do the insiders land enough punches that the regulators actually change the rules. Right. So now we're getting into an interesting question about the future of Facebook as a business in this regard. It has, I think, what, two, two and a half billion subscribers right now? It's above two billion. It's above not two, two and billion, a half. Yeah. But they have a problem. One problem is they can't get into China. I don't think they can access Russia, can they? They have very limited, very limited, uh, very limited use in Russia, though they're not completely excluded. So two very big population bases they would love to crack. And on top of that, there's the generational issue of young people not coming on. So how do they maintain that $2 billion figure, uh, $2 billion, uh, registration figure? And then the second issue is going to be the confidence in the stock itself. It's taken about a 15% tumble, I think, this year. The FANG sector is down about 6 or 7%. Uh, and this is serious business because when you're talking FANG, you're talking the likes of Apple which really drives the NASDAQ. Right. Um, why have people abandoned Facebook monetarily, Neil? Is it, is it a reaction to the bad news, or are they looking at the bigger business model picture? And complicating that is that you have a CEO, a founder, who is so tied into the company, like Steve Jobs with Apple, that should that founder leave, there's a fundamental question of what does the future hold for the company? Two great questions, but I think, number one, the direction of growth in terms of of users mm -hmm. isn't necessarily down globally because right. there are substantially uh, uh, undeveloped markets for social media out there in emerging markets. And what's fascinating is the fight that is going on in those emerging markets between the US companies and the Chinese companies. Mm -hmm. So you, I think Facebook may find that while it's reached a plateau in the US and may even see some, some uh, decline in, in users, uh, globally, it's probably still going to carry on growing. Right. The second question really has to do with uh, its ability to make money. Now, if Facebook can make money even with user numbers declining because it can vary the price of its core product, which is the advertising. Right. And since it has something not quite approximating but nearly approximating to a duopoly with Google, in the realm of online advertising, it has some pricing power there. Right. And I think given that advertisers know there's never been an advertising tool like this, as long as the model hasn't been fundamentally changed, as long as they can still do what they do with user data, then I think the revenues are gonna keep on growing even if the user numbers were to decline. Right. So it's a little bit like what happened to Philip Morris to the tobacco companies when the, uh, the, the world changed and the science made it clear that, that cigarettes were tremendously bad for your health, they still continued to make money. Even as cigarette smoking declined as an activity and was regulated to the point that you can only now do it outside of bars, I think that you might just see the same story with Facebook, that it goes through this awful rocky patch uh, and investors get a little nervous, but the smart investors see the buying opportunity and 10 years from now, the stock is well up. So you got to think about this purely from a, a, a business perspective. They're selling an addictive product. They have a near monopoly or at least a duopoly. And is the U.S. government really going to regulate 
as corpor- a corporation that big out of existence. There's very little history to suggest that that would happen. From Standard Oil to AT&T to Microsoft, the U.S. government can make life difficult for super successful big corporations, but it doesn't tend to kill them. Were you surprised that Sandberg and Zuckerberg both gave away the regulation aspect so quickly? And, you know, that's, that's like Poland in 1939 saying, come on in, gas station five miles ahead. No, I don't think so, Bill. I think that's quite calculated because they know their position's tremendously weak, that they're almost certainly going to get hammered for... So they're thinking it's inevitable, so we're just yeah, going to kind of swim. Yeah, we're going to drive into the skid. I think that's what they're doing. And I think what was interesting about Zuckerberg's interview last week was that he said, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea if we were regulated. Well, that wasn't off the cuff. They'd clearly decided to, to go down that route. But what did he specifically say should be regulated? Oh, political advertising should be identified as such. Well, you know, that is not a major concession. So I suspect what we'll see here is, yeah, we need to be regulated. It's true. Right. Um, and, and by the way, when you get down to writing the regulation, meet our lobbyists. They're going to help you. And meet, the, meet, meet our congressmen. They're going to help you draft the, mm-hmm. draft the terms. So I, I think the story in, in the broad sweep of American history is that big corporations with, with high-profile leaders get into this kind of situation when they get too powerful and they lose public trust. And then along comes big bad Uncle Sam with his with his stick, and I'm going to regulate you. And the correct response to that is, you're right, we've been so wicked, we need to be regulated. Let's go be regulated. Public loses interest at that point. Mm-hmm. And the small print eventually emerges from this process, and the small print says that, in fact, the incumbent company, whether it be Facebook or Microsoft, is going to be perfectly well protected by the regulatory regime. In fact, the regulatory regime may end up raising barriers to competition and entrenching the incumbent. It wouldn't be the first time that that had happened. So my advice to listeners is watch very closely uh, and read very carefully whatever changes to the regulation emerge from all of this. I'll be amazed if they are significantly harmful to Facebook's profitability. Did Zuckerberg do the interview with Anderson Cooper? I think Anderson was kind of busy that week with Stormy. I thought that he maybe did it because I was going to say only in America can you interview both Mark Zuckerberg and Story Daniels. It was not, in fact. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't Anderson Cooper who did the interview. It was uh, one of his female colleagues' name I am blanking on because I only read the transcript. Right, because I, I always look at the game inside the game, and so my thought was, okay, they're going to have to put them on television at some point. So who are they going to seek out in the media whom they would deem as sufficiently safe, friendly, cooperative? To me, the mystery is really why Sheryl Sandberg's been so uh, invisible in mm-hmm. the course of this crisis. After all, she's the one with the, the political experience. Uh, she's the one with the Olympic standard presentational skills. Right. She's the one who abs- who designed the advertising revenue model that currently mm-hmm. uh, makes them so much money and got them into this mess. Right. But where is Cheryl? Has well, she could, been seen lately? I mean, I'm I'm hoping she'll lean in at some let point. Let me throw two schools of thought. You said lean in, so that's what I'd like to get to. One school of thought, she's the COO, not the CEO. So just as you would not expect Mike Pence to necessarily carry the president's water, maybe this is when uh, Mr. Zuckerberg has to put on a real shirt, not the T-shirt, and put on the big boy pants and explain what went wrong. But then the second school of thought, Neil, if you want to be cynical about this, is she has a very well-established brand of her own, Lean On, and that is her identity. And maybe she doesn't want to sully the identity by now getting dragged into the world of data privacy, which leads into one other thing, which is the greater world of Donald Trump 
disorientation and Donald Trump derangement. I think both of these explanations are plausible and they are not mutually inconsistent. By mentioning Trump, you open up a whole new avenue of inquiry, though, which is at what point does the fight between the president and Silicon Valley get really serious? Because up until now, it's been kind of fairly minor league by his standards. The the, uh, latest tweets directed at Amazon Right. suggest maybe he's uh, he's warming to this topic. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see if he decides to run with a broader anti-Silicon Valley theme. Amazon is, is a very difficult target for anyone to hit because Amazon's about the most popular corporation in this country. Correct. And, uh, and so you're going after a company that at this point most people love. Mm-hmm. However, if the president were to go after Facebook, uh, or for that matter, Google, which I think he legitimately could, given their political uh, hostility to him, which has been avert. I mean, these companies were very explicitly hostile to the president last year. Then I think he might get a little bit more traction. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but to pick on Amazon seems like the wrong Right sector, wrong target. It is the opposite or similar, I should say, to something which was happening in this part of Northern California before you arrived, Neil. And that was the locals' fight against big box stores, against the likes of Costco and Sam's Club, which around here are viewed as evil because they're monstrosities and they create traffic and they just they take small businesses out. We hate this. We're going to fight these big, ugly corporations. But you go to vast portions of America and people love going to Costco. Right. Yeah, and I think... That in that sense, Amazon's of all the tech companies, right. probably the least likely uh, to be hurt. It was a buying opportunity, I suspect, when when the stock took a took a tumble after Trump's attack on it. I think Apple is also in a relatively strong position, and I was struck by the fact that Tim Cook jumped uh, on Facebook by emphasizing the relative uh, privacy of user data on the Apple platform. The Apple platform is a pretty closed system. So, you know, you realize at times like this how little love is lost between these big tech companies. There's still a predatory element. Oh, yeah. Business, they compete yeah. with one another. And I think, the, I think the WhatsApp founder jumped on this, and WhatsApp was financed by Facebook, wasn't it? And, yeah. and to have the WhatsApp founder saying, uh, let's leave Facebook after heaven knows how much money he made on the sale to Facebook right. is one of the many ironies of this of this saga. One thing's for sure, Silicon Valley doesn't always hang together, though they do tend to hang together when there's a regulatory threat that they all feel in common. Right. And that we saw that in the particular case of, and now I'm going to sound incredibly wonkish and professorial, uh, Article 230 of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, or Communications and Decency Act, as it was originally known. Now, any threat to that gets them all on the same side because that's the little exemption that says they are technology companies, not content publishers. Therefore, they are not liable for the content that appears on their platforms. It's a huge exemption. It's been vital to the growth of these businesses. It's now a really old uh, 22-year-old piece of legislation. I think an attack on that would certainly unite the big tech companies. But I think in some ways that's the right way to go. I mean, I'm not a believer that antitrust is the answer. It'd be very hard to break these companies up. I'm not convinced that we want to make the FTC or any other regulator more powerful. 
Uh, but I do think that we could increase the liability of these companies in the courts because on issues of free speech, I think it's there that they could be challenged, as well as on issues of, of harm caused by content. I certainly don't see why we should carry on pretending that Facebook is not a content publisher. It clearly is the biggest content publisher in the history of the United States, if not the world. And it's probably time that it had some liability for all that appears on the platform. So it's interesting that we've just seen uh, bipartisan agreement to, to qualify or limit that exemption on the issue of, uh, of sex trafficking. I think that's the thin end of what could be quite a big wedge. Where is your former Senator Elizabeth Warren in all this? Because she rarely misses a chance to go after a corporation that she views as too greedy, too corrupt, dishonest, what have you. I well, don't think I've seen her talking much about this, has she? Right, and, and that's because her beat is usually the big banks and Finance. Wall Street. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, Elizabeth, that is so old. That's like 10 years ago. Get with the program. The real bad guys in, in, uh, in Monopoly capitalism are on, on the West Coast. One of her protégés is on the FTC now. It'll be interesting to see if this becomes part of her, of her show. But it mm -hmm. won't be a big part of the Warren show if it becomes part of the Trump show. Right. That's where the president in some ways has the initiative, as so often he has the option to make this a political issue. He, he, he could press his advantage because it's clear that certainly YouTube and probably Twitter and Facebook too do in some measure discriminate against the right. There, there are more than just anecdotes to support this. There's a court case, and that's the, uh, the court case between the Prager University and YouTube, where Dennis Prager is suing because content on his uh, PragerU site is marked as restricted mm. by YouTube, right. uh, including content by Hoover Fellows, such as my wife, Ayan Hersi Ali. So I think conservatives generally, and the president specifically, could press harder on Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley is so skewed to the left. Peter Thiel left San Francisco or is leaving San Francisco. Um, he said at the cardinal conversation we had at the end of January that Silicon Valley was a one-party state. Mm -hmm. And I think the general uh, shabbiness with which he's been treated following his support for Donald Trump speaks to that. So it's potentially very political. It could become much more politicized if the president decided to go after not just Jeff Bezos, but the big tech companies, and especially after Facebook and Google, which are significantly less popular than Amazon, and therefore, I think, better targets. Let's design a cardinal conversation for you, or just a regular conversation, if you want to call it. You are moderating, and you get to put Mr. Zuckerberg in one chair. Who sits in the other chair? Or do you have more than two people on the stage with you? Well, I, I think having him sit down with the man who's become one of his most effective critics, Roger McNamee, mm -hmm would be fascinating because McNamee was one of his mentors when he was a 20-something kid fresh out of Harvard. And here is somebody who advised him, helped him build the business, invested money uh, in Facebook, who is now saying, I feel like I'm the parent of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. So the most fascinating conversation, I think, would be between Mark Zuckerberg and those who helped him build this business, who now feel d d disillusioned and indeed betrayed. Mm -hmm. And if you had to ask Zuckerberg a question, if he had the privilege of asking him a question too, what would you ask him? 
Why did you drop out of Harvard without taking one of my history courses? If you had only taken one, you could have saved yourself so much trouble. And why don't you buy my books? But he may. Maybe he he does. Uh, I gave him a free copy of The Square and the Tower saying you probably should read this. But we probably have to go mine the data of uh, Amazon to go see if he buys them or not. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure they wouldn't tell me that, although they probably know it. Okay, final question. I do appreciate your time today, Neil. Um, At all times, I turn to The Simpsons for guidance on public Mm. policy. And there is a wonderful episode of The Simpsons where Marge Simpson leads a crusade against an afternoon cartoon show because it's too violent. And eventually her boycott works and kids stop watching TV. And then, as only The Simpsons can do, there's a wonderful scene where the kids turn off the TVs and they all walk outside. In the background, they play Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. It's just a wonderful, wonderfully done all around. And the kids discover there's outdoors and nature and playing and all kinds of fun. They turn off the technology. In a world where you turn off Facebook, Neil, what happens? We know that kids are badly affected by social media. We know that the addiction is especially virulent mm-hmm. amongst teens. Right. And we know that the negative consequences, depression, anxiety, even a, a, a suicide uh, risk, all these things go up. So there's no question, though you asked me a lighthearted question, I'm going to give it a serious answer. There's no question that kids would be better off mm-hmm without cell phones, without smartphones, without constant screen time. And I, as a parent, am practicing that pretty zealously. Uh, My six-year-old is not going near these devices. Ever. If I can help it. Well, it's very difficult when he's assigned homework on a computer. And at some age, you're going to have to give him a phone. But I am putting off the evil hour uh, of a phone a very long time because I've seen with my older children how addictive the devices can be, how damaging the gaming addiction can be, particularly for boys, Mm -hmm. uh, how damaging the social anxieties can be for girls. I I think we all as parents need to say, whoa, this is nuts. This is like giving cigarettes to six-year-olds or 10-year-olds. So I think, although I, I don't think we'll get to that utopian vision that you described from The Simpsons of kids actually playing outdoors, in uh, enjoying the, 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 the pleasures of nature as, as I did as a kid, mm-hmm. we can get halfway there by just saying, hand over the phone, ration access to the screens, and tell kids that the real social networks are the ones that you form in the schoolyard, the ones that you form in the playground, not the ones that you form online. Mm-hmm. Are you suggesting some sort of V-chip? for Facebook and Instagram and these other, these other apps? What I'm suggesting is rationing, that you have to ration the time that kids watch TV mm-hmm. and you have to ration the time that they spend on, on computers. And as I said earlier, books are an antidote as, as powerful and as important as playing in the park. The biggest problem that we have today, in my view, is that we have a generation that has barely read a fraction of what older generations had read. And I'm talking at all levels of, of society. And this ignorance of the great body of, of our, our culture that is enshrined and embodied in books is really troubling. If people don't know even a fraction of the great literature of uh, mankind, then at some level they are, they are not civilized at all. Right. If all you've read... If all you've really read are your friends' Facebook posts and and tweets and instant messages, then you haven't really read anything at all. So I'm I'm like that guy you mentioned standing outside the football stadium 
shouting, get, get ye to church. I'm standing outside the internet, sometimes inside the internet, saying, go to a public library or a bookshop and buy a book. It doesn't need to be mine, but that would be nice. Right. And there's one other challenge, Neil, and that's getting people just to talk and communicate and share thoughts. And if they have different opinions, at least have so in a common way. One challenge with social media is families that sit down for dinner and the kids on the phone during dinner. The families are not having conversations. But you look at Twitter, for example, and Twitter, in theory, is a wonderful concept where people can you know, share hot takes. It's only 280 words, so it's too abbreviated. But in theory, everybody can get on the same platform, everybody waiting for the same train. Everyone can offer their thoughts. But what has happened on Twitter? It's become just one long, ugly brawl. So there, there has to be some way to restore civility. And I'm not saying take away Facebook and, and Twitter, but there has to, wait, we have to be able to weave this back into society. Because if there's one thing I think which has been true in the Trump years, Neil, it's exhausting to go through this on just a daily, weekly, hourly basis with this man and everything around it. Not just Trump, but just the entire sentiment that Trump drags up. So I don't know how you, Neil Ferguson, are going to turn this tide or not, but there has to be a way to get people to kick the social media addiction and just learn to communicate with each other in different ways. And be civil. The only thing that I can do is, insofar as I'm involved in these very various public discussions, is to remain civil at all times. And, uh, and when all around you are resorting to the F word, you don't, and you, and you don't descend to the level of the urinal wall, which is, of course, exactly what Twitter is, one vast urinal wall. Yeah. So I think that's the most one can really do, and uh, I've learned the hard way uh, not, to, you know, not to engage in jungle warfare, but rather when being uh, attacked online, uh, when people are using that kind of offensive language uh, to turn away and try to start a civil conversation with other people mm -hmm. somewhere else. It's hard to do because we all have a desire to, to strike back when abusive language is being used. And I, I come from a retaliation culture, the city of Glasgow in Scotland. <laughs> I've had to learn the hard way that there is a good deal to be said for turning the other cheek. Civility is crucial. The internet is extraordinarily hostile to it. Indeed, the internet encourages the use of abusive language. Did you know, for example, Bill, that a tweet is 20% more likely to be retweeted for every strong word, every moral or emotive word that is used? So the way that Twitter works is essentially to encourage people to express themselves with strong language, which is why there is so much effing right. uh, and blinding on Twitter. On Twitter, these are engines of polarization and also engines of confirmation bias. Right. I think the best cure is conversations in real time, in real space. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that might be the antidote to our generalized coming apart, and especially our, our online coming apart, uh, is a, a reaffirmation of neighborliness, of neighborhood conversations. I found myself the other day at a conversation with my neighbors on the simple question of what to do in the case of an earthquake, something mm -hmm. that we in Northern California should give thought to on a pretty regular basis. I was very struck by the fact that although we were politically a pretty diverse group, on the issue of what to do in the case of an emergency, we quite quickly got along. And by the end of an hour and a half of discussing how exactly we would cope, we were just happier people and better neighbors. And nobody mentioned 
nor did they need to mention Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, or for that matter, Mark Zuckerberg. Right. And I'm glad to say that nobody said, hey, we should set up a face group, Facebook group. <laughs> but if people aren't reading books, Neil, perhaps no one's read Lord of the Flies. Well, Lord of the Flies is kind of, it's kind of been reenacted on a vast scale on social media these days. And it's never pretty to watch those mobs that form when some some weak boy, some weak individual is uh, is suddenly right. surrounded and, and but, punished. But we do turn to the Orwellian theme, and you actually talked about this in one of your columns at Zuckerberg, where you called him, uh, what, Big Zucker, right? Big Zucker is watching you. He sure is. I mean, to me, oh God, it was fascinating, but I went back to 1984, which I haven't read for many, many years, thinking to myself, the telescreen, what exactly does Orwell say about the telescreen? Now, of course, you'll remember from the book, the telescreen is the fixed television screen that can watch you even as you watch it. Right. And in Orwell's uh, nightmare dystopia, you're obliged to watch the telescreen under all kinds of coercive uh, penalties if you don't. Well, in our time, we have gone much further than Orwell had uh, imagined we have mobile telescreens called smartphones and we voluntarily allow ourselves to be under surveillance all the time. He never foresaw that we could be that weak, mm -hmm. that craven, nor did he think that the telescreen would end up being an instrument not of totalitarianism, but of consumer capitalism. It's an amazing turn of events. There's a wonderful moment in the book, this made me happy, when he says, Orwell's describing Winston Smith's relationship with the telescreen, and he says, you had to be very careful not to show the wrong facial expression. There was a word in that, a word for that in Newspeak, face crime. Face crime. <laughs> and I thought to myself, face crime. Well done. Didn't Apple do a 1984 ad years ago during the Super Bowl? That's right, trying to portray... And I think Microsoft. It, and as, then I think it was mocked as, and used as an ad against Hillary Clinton. As well. Yes, one of those memes that runs and runs. I mean, the, the thing about, about Orwell's 1984 is that it is a wonderful piece of writing. It is one of the great affirmations of a certain idea of liberty and a terrifically vivid warning of what totalitarianism was like. If you went to the Soviet Union, as I did, in around 1984, it was a lot like Orwell's vision right. of... Uh, Oceania was a lot like the way Orwell saw it would be, that, that strange disconnect between utter shabbiness and absurdly hyperbolic propaganda, you know, that, that rundown houses and military parades. Well, Orwell saw all that coming in 1948. Extraordinary. But the book is, is, is chilling to revisit in, in this age of commercial surveillance that we've all volunteered for. Mm -hmm. Which other Orwell publication would you like to add? Would you like to go along with Animal Farm as an extension of this conversation or Killing an Elephant? <sighs> They're both brilliant works. I think Killing an Elephant might be more germane uh, because it's all a, about... Take, it's about putting a lot of bullets into an elephant. Well, it's all about how you, yeah. who, how you can be forced to carry out certain unpleasant acts mm -hmm. under the pressure of convention under the, the pressure of your your role, which in Orwell's case was as a policeman in, in Burma. On the other hand, anybody working in a university uh, in the year 2018 should definitely reread Animal Farm because there is something of Animal Farm about the, uh, the way the social justice warriors and their politically correct allies in uh, 
in the academic world operate. So yeah, I I I think Orwell somehow come back to life for me in the last couple of years, partly because of social media and partly because of the increasingly intolerant left. Orwell always hated the illiberal left. He was a man of the left himself, but he couldn't abide uh, what he saw in the Spanish Civil War on the part of the communists. I think this warning against the illiberal left needs to be reissued because they're back. Can you imagine being George Orwell's publicist and saying, George, we're going to put up a page for you on Facebook so we can sell your books? It's the kind of thing Orwell would, would have hated. <laughs> he would have hated Facebook. I don't think you're too wild about doing it either, my friend. Yes, but I'm weaker or less courageous than Orwell. I just go along with the, the publicity people. And you're also very patient. I appreciate your sitting in today, Neil. Thanks, Bill. It's been a fun conversation. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States, and in this case, the choices available to that other guy who has a lot more money than Mr. Trump, who is Mr. Zuckerberg. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Neil Ferguson and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. You'll find more info on Cardinal Conversations, by the way, at the Hoover website. Uh, you'll learn more about our free speech initiative. It also includes live streams of Neil's interviews that you can watch. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Neil Ferguson, no surprise, likewise is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at nfergus. That's at N-F-E-R-G-U-S, at nfergus. There is an entire website devoted to the world of Neil Ferguson. It is called, not surprisingly, neilferguson.com. I will now spell that out for you, N-I-A-L-L-F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, neilferguson.com. Neil, anything else I need to mention? Well, apart from the fact that I must be the biggest hypocrite in the world for being on social media that much and writing so negatively about it in my new book. The book's title one last time is? The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power, From the Freemasons to Facebook. Available on Amazon until Donald Trump does away with Amazon. (laughs) Correct. Neil, thanks again. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.